Welcome to this week's edition of the NinersNation.com Bad Arrivals Podcast. My name is Oscar. My name is David. And this week, we are officially back from our two-week hiatus. Finally going to come at you with some post-draft thoughts. Uh, I was on vacay, basically is why you didn't hear from us for a couple of weeks. I was in sunny Spain. I was enjoying the sun, Granada, Sevilla, Barcelona. And uh, I'm about to leave, so enjoy it while it lasts. <laughs> Basically, we'll, we'll wrap up. We'll, ta- we'll tell you all about the schedule and what it's going to look like. But we're going to be here for the next couple of weeks to give you some of these thoughts. And w- what we're going to do is we're going to record one episode tonight, Wednesday. The what date is it? The Wednesday, the 16th. We're going to split it up into two episodes because we're going to talk a lot about the players. We're going to go in depth using our evaluation rubric that we've been using the entire offseason for these players. And we're just going to split it up. That way you've got content the next couple of weeks. And we don't have to worry about David being on a jet plane going off to Italy. <laughs> uh, it's going to be a lot of fun, man. Uh, we got a lot to get to. It's been a while. And we're a little late like on the, the post-draft content train here. But but there's five months of dead space right uh, now. Literally, yeah, there's, there's nothing, nothing that's There's nothing that's going to happen like between now and basically training camp. Uh, that matters even a little bit. The reason that all of the beat writers are doing Q&As right now is because they are trying to fill content where there is none. (laughs) (laughs) So we figure we'll be just fine. It'll be okay. You waited. I'm glad you waited. It's going to be awesome. Other new things to let you know about, we've got merch. We officially have a merch store on TeePublic. And a huge shout out to whomever bought the two (laughs) hashtag about to throw up onesies because that's just gold. Is I mean, putting that on a baby is amazing. Having that email come in was just like, it was like I had the wedding, right, which was the greatest day of my life. And then about three days later when I got that email, it was just already over and it was replaced by about to throw up onesies. <laughs> That's, that, hey, man, life comes at you fast. <laughs> life comes at you fast. And of course, thanks to our staff designer, one Mr. Josie Boston, we've got new schedule wallpapers that are up for download and we've got a brand new podcast logo, which should be up on iTunes, should be up on SoundCloud. And wherever it is that you download this fantabulous podcast. So thanks again to Josie. All of the artwork that you see that we put out is all done by him, uh, except for the T-shirt stuff. I think David did the T-shirt stuff. Yeah. But thanks again to Josie. The podcast logo looks dope. And we're super excited to have it. So check out the merch store if you haven't. We're going to tweet out links at the end of the episode. And make sure you download that schedule wallpaper. So let's get to the rundown because the your nightmare is finally over, David. Dude, it happened. It, it happened. It I happened. Got- um, my projected enjoyment of 49ers football this season just went up by like, I don't know, 15%, 20%. Uh, about uh, as whatever percent a leg tap is from the guard to the center. <laughs> we'll put it that way. And why are you so happy, David? Zane Beatles, man, he's gone. Uh, he's, he gone. He's, he's gone finally. Um, we can get rid of the player who was versatile but good at nothing. Um, there's, I mean, it was really, it was always going to be unlikely that he actually earned another starting job, but just like the fear of him potentially coming in due to injury or something else, uh, I'm just glad that we can put that behind us. So I think it's it's fitting that he was released because one of the questions that we did in the merch giveaway for the the launch of the, of the merch store was uh, an open field question, and it was, what was David's least liked or most hated uh, 49er in history? I think that was the exact question. And we got a bunch of, of entries. We got over, we got just shy of 200 entries on, on this question, which I really enjoyed. So my question to you is, first, before I reveal the results. Oh, man, I want to hear Before I reveal the results, I want to know who, without any prompting, without any, without any poisoning of the well, who is your favorite or least favorite 49er of all time? Go. 
Do I have to pick just one? Uh, you can pick one, and then we'll go. We'll um, add some more color later. Man, I think. Uh, I mean, immediately, I, I would say a rational like dislike was probably Vance McDonald. All right, um, was probably a player that was like maybe a little bit better, but I just like people wanted to make him out to be so much more than he was, and he just wasn't that, and that kind of got on my nerves a bit. Um, and then other than that, I mean, it's Beatles and probably like Jordan Devi, uh, <laughs> and all of his tuba greatness. Um, I mean, those are the ones that are up there. Those are the ones that immediately jump to mind that I've just like had many rants about like over the past few years. So our listeners know you fairly well, I would say. All right. What do we got? Uh, so in, in order stack ranked of where the listeners would put these players, number one, most hated player for David Zane Beatles. Sure. Number two, yep. Jordan Devi. <laughs> number three, Vance McDonald. All right, there we go. What do we got after that? Uh, after that, you got uh, AJ Jenkins and Glenn Babbert. Oh, man, Glenn Babbert. Yeah, yeah and then after that, it just gets weird. Uh, Kyle Williams, Trent Balky, Tank Carradine, Bruce Miller's in there, Ahmad Brooks, Dante Johnson. We had some weird ones. Jim Drunkenmiller. There were two people, two unique people that listed LaMichael James. What? I like LaMichael James. I think they must be like longtime podcast listeners because at one time we had this whole not about football thing that we did for a bit. So and that was that was years ago, years and years ago. Malcolm Smith made the cut. Oh, I mean, Uh, fair, but he hasn't been, um, you know, relevant enough to hate a whole lot yet. Yeah. uh, Someone put in Joe Montana. I feel like that was a throwaway. Like they they didn't understand the question. Uh, I don't know how that how that worked out. But yeah. Uh, And my favorite one in the pantheon of didn't get the question is Seahawks. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Not completely wrong. No, no, not Uh, at all. But yeah, dude, uh, some of the fans are really great. Jacob uh, Lundin put in Tank Carradine Elite Six Tech. Uh, Sean, oh man. Uh, oh man, Sean, it just shows their first name and their email, but Sean said Jordan the trombone Devi. Nice. I like that one. Very nice. Um, John, I couldn't list this as a player, but it's still merited, I think, mentioning. Uh, John lists punters or people, not draft picks as your most hated 49er. Uh, <laughs> Kurt Rosenfeld, Jordan Devi, the turnstile tuba. Oh man, I love it. it yeah, love it, it was it's it was great. pretty good. Yeah, it was pretty good. So uh, for those of you, because David listed Vance McDonald as his most disliked or most hated 49er of all time, if you chose Vance McDonald, then I'm going to randomly select one of you, and you're going to get Matt Waldman's rookie scouting portfolio for free nice. in your email. Uh, so take a look out for that. I'll uh, I'll email you directly, and I'll probably, if you have a Twitter handle, I'll I'll put it out there on Twitter as well. But thanks again to everyone who entered. Thanks again to everyone who listed those answers. It was really funny. I was getting a kick out of it uh, and and listing <laughs> all those. Great. So yeah, it was it was pretty awesome. So incidentally, uh, Zane Beetle's overwhelming favorite. Everyone thought that like that was the one guy. Yeah, he, what, he got was, more what than, were the number of votes for him compared to the next person? Um, he got more than three times the number of votes as the next person. Oh wow! Um, I mean, yeah. which is again is is fair is yeah. is totally fair. But I would say that was like very deserved. Um, whereas yeah. like Vance McDonald was maybe like an irrational hate. more more negative than it was really warranted. At one point, I tried to go back and find that Vance McDonald rant, and I could not find it. So. If anyone who's listening, if you remember the specific episode where where David goes on his Vance McDonald rant, please send it to me uh, because I would love to just drop clips of that at random interval just over time whenever you least expect it. 
Oh, but let's get to the draft breakdown because we're going to talk about each individual player in depth. And we're going to do so using the rubric that we've been using all season when looking at these players. If you haven't been paying attention this offseason, we've been using four things that we're going to review for each individual player. One is their athleticism. Two is their production. Three is where this player wins. And four are, we changed this one a little bit, but areas of improvement or uh, like limitations. So these are this is going to change a little bit depending on the player and, and where we thought it was important to make the change. And we'll call it out when we do. But those are the four areas that we're going to look at for each individual player. And we're going to do this for every single one of them. We're going to tackle the top draft picks first this week. Next week, we'll do the later on draft picks. And overall, we'll give you our kind of takeaways from the draft and overall impressions over the next couple of weeks. So let's start with the top of the draft. And let's start with uh, the kind of the overall strategy. So let's start with the big picture and the, the thing that we did over the course of, what, like four weeks was yeah. we looked at different position groups and we, we kind of put our best guess at what we thought the 49ers should do. And we thought, number one, the Niners should take the best defender at nine, whether that was Derwin James, whether that was Harold Landry, whatever they thought the best defender was, take that person. Middle rounds go with some combination of cornerback, wide receiver, and interior offensive line. And then later on in the draft, you find value in the athletic profile. But the 49ers did something a little different. At the top of the draft, they got their position of value, which was tackle. In the middle of the draft, they got wide receiver, a coverage linebacker, and a defensive back. And then in the latter rounds, they did go for value, but they got value in a couple of different ways. They got players that were injured with Contavious Street or Marcel Harris. They got small school players, Julian Taylor and Richie James. Or they got players that had solid productions but didn't meet the height weight requirements that you might have for a corner in DJ Reed. So how do those things match up? Do they match up? And, and do you think that their overall strategy makes sense given the way, you know, kind of given what, you, what we know about the roster and what we looked at over the kind of in preceding four weeks? Definitely. And I think there's, you know, we're going to tackle this, I think, a little bit more in depth too, like after getting to the players and getting to some of our larger takeaways. But largely looking at it, you look at the first two picks and it's going offense and it's going at, at positions that help your passing game, right? You have one of the most important positions in the game and tackle, uh, and then you get a, another receiver that's going to help your passing game out there, and you're really looking to surround Jimmy Garoppolo and, and add more talent to that area, right? Defense has been such a focus for them uh, in recent seasons that it's it's nice to get kind of some early talent there offensively. And then you look in the middle rounds, and it's uh, largely players that affect the passing game, and it's largely players uh, that help their coverage, right, or that, that can potentially help their coverage. And we've talked about all offseason long, the single biggest weakness of this team last season was coverage. And so throwing a bunch of bodies and trying to improve in that area, um, you know, overall, we're obviously going to get into the specific players and whether we like them and whether that makes sense. But just as an overall strategy, throwing a lot of players in that realm definitely makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah, we talked about that in, in the podcast leading up to it, where like, where do you double up? Where do you try and get more chips on that table? And we both thought that defensive back was one of those areas where, yeah, you, you want to just because of the the nature of what the team lacked, but also how important that position was. And that's exactly what they did. They attacked that need in the middle rounds um, and they got some players that, you know, I think can be really good. So uh, overall strategy, I thought it's important to just take a note what that is, uh, what it was and what it ended up shaking out to be. But now let's get into the granular players. Let's talk about that first overall pick, Mike McGlinchey. We did have a, an initial reaction when <laughs> when we had when we had the draft initially. Uh, but this is going to be a more in-depth look after looking at what Mike, Mc, Mike McGlinchey is as a player. 
And let's start with, with his athleticism. David, how much of an athlete did you see on tape? Because uh, he didn't really run the 40 or do any change of direction drills. So it's, we don't have a piece uh, score for him. But uh, what did you see on tape? I think he moves well. I mean, it's uh, it's very clear. There, there's a very clear difference between the way that he moves as a very large man at tackle and the way that, uh, I don't know, Trent Brown moves as a very large man at tackle. And we've talked about Trent Brown, like, being a player who uh, has been very good in pass protection, but just didn't seem like a very good scheme fit, right? Because he's just this huge lumbering body and, and really is a bigger fit, or excuse me, a better fit when he can be in a run scheme that gets him going downhill a little bit where he can really be that powerful player that he is. Doesn't have really the movement skills to execute a lot of the blocks in the run game that the 49ers want to do. And I think McGlinchey uh, is, is definitely more than capable of doing that stuff in the run game that they want to be able to do. So movement skills didn't have an issue uh, there at all. You didn't see them run necessarily a ton of the same type of outside zone um, that, that the 49ers are going to use predominantly. But when he did have the opportunity to get out in space and moved, he looked good. And, and even in other situations like getting out uh, on poles and getting out, uh, you know, in the screen game a little bit, like you see the ability to, uh, you know, move well and find and locate targets there, which is going to be the really important thing with him. Yeah, he moved really well. Every every time we tried to pull up an outside zone run, Notre Dame seemed to be running a pin and pull concept, which is basically an outside zone run for teams that really like to prefer, prefer to run more of a gap scheme. And so it was difficult to see him on that same kind of track that you do in, in or that you, we will see him here with the 49ers. But there were a couple of snaps that we saw him do that. And he executed a couple of reach blocks really well, really, really good on the move. And and so overall, I think his athleticism is, is really, really good. His production, he's got three full seasons of very, very good grading. His peak grade of 90.6 based on pro football focus's charting was the third highest in the nation among tackles. And he had the number one run block grade. And that was a 95 grade, which is very, very good. This is again out of 100. So he had fantastic production in college. And his pa- he's a better run blocker than he was a pass defender or a pass blocker but his pass block grades were very consistent coming in at about 85 every season so overall even though he has he's better in the run game he was no slouch in the pass game definitely i mean you're talking about only 50 pressures you know he has really three full seasons of playing time there at notre dame only 50 total pressures allowed uh in about nearly 1300 pass block snaps during those three seasons so um, you know, didn't get beat a, a ton, you know, was very consistent there, like you mentioned, uh, you know, coming in with similar grades every single year there. And I think when you move on to kind of where he wins, right, and what he does well, that was one of the first things that jumped out to me was was kind of how consistent he is in his pass set, right? It wasn't quite uh, like Quentin Nelson level of consistency, where I think we talked about this beforehand, where uh, one of the things that Mike Renner mentioned in his scouting report of Nelson before the draft was his his pass sets basically look like instant replays because the movement is so similar and so consistent from snap to snap. Um, and you definitely get a similar vibe, you know, with McGlinchey. And uh, it, I think it speaks to kind of how well they were coached there. And the offensive line coach that they had at Notre Dame was very good turning out all these first round picks. Um, so I think he was really good there. Uh, and, and it was, you know, if he gets his hands on you, he's got those big, long arms uh, that teams really love to have at tackle. And if he gets those those guys locked in and gets them inside your chest, like it's over, like the snap is over. There's really no chance that that defender is going to be able to separate at that point and be able to affect the play in any way. And he's got a really strong anchor. He rarely gave up pressure versus the bull rush, which is good. You'll see him reset often and reset very, very well. 
uh, there's oftentimes this little kind of jump, this jump reset that tackles do where initially they kind of get hit and they get a little bit off balance and they kind of jump back and get both feet down. Uh, and whenever he, he, he didn't have to do that often because he always had a re- really, really good base, wide legs yep. um, and solid hips. But he, it, sometimes I feel really weird saying those things out loud. It's like, yeah, he's got <laughs> great feet, solid hips. It's awesome. But he does. He has all those things. And he was able to re-anchor and recover well if he lets the defender get into him initially. And even when a defender begins to, to kind of move across his face and beat him, he's still able to, because of his athleticism, because of his balance, wash them away and move them away, even if he it wasn't the, the most pristine of pass-blocking snaps. Definitely. And I think when you move to the run game, you know, you mentioned that number one overall run block grade a season ago, and that was something that was there throughout his time at Notre Dame. Um, I mean, he's excellent in, in that regard. It was one of the best run blocking tackles uh, in the nation all three seasons at Notre Dame. Um, you know, again, like we mentioned, kind of in the athleticism part, you didn't get to see like, you know, hundreds of snaps of him doing the same type of blocks uh, that he's going to be asked to do with the 49ers here in, in the outside zone that they like to run. But whenever he was asked to do it, it was great. And then he's just, you know, he's a powerful player. Like him and Nelson, uh, and granted, like getting to play with, you know, one of the best guard prospects that we've really had uh, in in quite some time here, like certainly helps matters. But you would just see him and Nelson demolish dudes on double teams. Like it wasn't even, like they're moving guys with ease five yards off the ball nearly every single snap that they get an opportunity to double team there. Um, And even in the one-on-one blocks, you know, one of the things when we were going through and watching tape is you would see, uh, you know, he would, he would always be in a position to kind of like get moving on players. There were, there were very rare, rarely snaps where he gets like kind of stoned at the line of scrimmage, right. And the defender really gets underneath him and, and is able to kind of limit the amount of movement. He, he really gets defenders moving, which helps widen your rushing lanes for your running back and gives them a little bit more space. Even if somebody, you know, kind of behind him, if you're thinking about that outside zone type play, uh, you know, loses their block a little bit and gives up a little bit of ground because he's helping create so much space there uh, with that movement ability. It, it's going to help out your run game quite a bit. Yeah, I, I really wonder how McGlinchey is going to feel taking a step up to the NFL and yet having a worse guard next to him on Sundays. I, I just I don't know what that <laughs> feeling is going to be like. It's it's uh, like yeah, <laughs> it's it's like going from JV ball to varsity ball and like the guy next to you is worse. And you're like, I, I don't understand how this what is happened happening. here. How did this how did this work? Yeah. Um, yeah, it'll be it'll, it'll be interesting. Um, so let's talk about areas for improvement for McGlinchey because there there he was the top rated tackle. He was the best tackle basically on the consensus boards. But that doesn't mean that he was without fault. The one thing that was consistent when he lost a snap was it had something to do with his punch timing or his punch strength. So this was for the pressures that he allowed. Oftentimes, it was a defender knocking his hands away or getting his hands knocked down, and it gave the edge rusher a clear path to the quarterback. He had a few, the most of them were around the edge, but he also had a few to the inside as well, and it was consistent over and over and over again. When you look at his negatively graded snaps, when you look at where he lost, it was because he lost the hand fight, and he lost it early, and then someone was able to blow around and either hit the quarterback or force a fumble. Definitely, and it's a case where you you know, you throw those hands out, and you would see when he hits, right, like the, the amount of power that he can generate um, with his punch when they land, and, and you'd see him just like jar dudes back and, and again kind of stop the snap at that point as far as that defender is concerned. Um, but there were times where, uh, you know, just whether it was, a, a, again, a timing issue where the defender is able to kind of time that up and knock those hands away before that punch can land. And it just kind of 
it, it led to some really ugly snaps in pass protection. Um, and so I think that's definitely the clear thing to watch with him going into the NFL. Um, it is important to remember that we're talking about maybe a I was, dozen snaps. I was just right? about to contextualize it because, uh, yes, it, that that is the thing he doesn't do well. But again, if you look at his overall production, he only allowed 50 pressures on 1,289 pass block snaps. So, yes, this is something that he can and will hopefully improve once he gets to the NFL because in the NFL, edge defenders are much better with their hands and they will exploit that deficiency. But it's not something that he that that happened often to him even in college. So even if he does see it at an increased rate, I don't think it's going to be like a, oh my God, he's going to fail type of thing. Yeah. It's something that his coaches, I'm sure, will work on him with. It's it's important to remember that like they're going to lose. Like Offensive linemen are going to lose. Even the best offensive linemen are going to have snaps where they, they lose and the defender across from them gets the better of them. And so, yeah, again, it's something to watch as he inevitably is going to face better pass rushers more consistently at the NFL level. He's going to be asked to take more, you know, Notre Dame runs a lot of play action stuff too, which aren't really pass protection on play action is not really the same, right? Defenders aren't pinning their ears back, trying to get after the quarterback. They're playing run first. Um, and, and they don't have to usually, you know, be in those one-on-one situations for as long. So, uh, he's going to have to do just straight pass, you know, pass drops, um, that, that more frequently. And so it's just going to be something that he does need to work on and continue to try to improve to make sure that it's not some sort of, you know, major flaw in the future for him. So where does he fit? Obviously he's the starting right tackle from day one. And, and uh, when you think of our reaction immediately after the draft and we had some time to really think about the pick and, and I think that the pick, I, I probably sounded more upset with the pick right after the draft, just because you probably heard some disappointment from me basically not getting my way, right? Like, I wanted sure. a specific player. I had my heart set on it, and I was like, oh, that, like, this sucks, especially because at that point, we didn't know Trent Brown was going to get traded. Yeah. So, you know, there were rumors, but who the hell knows? But at, at, I think what's important to note for me for the McGlinchey pick is that it is a position of value. Right. It's, it's not like they went up and drafted, like, a running back or a right. guard or something like that. And, and it's a position of value, and it's a player who was the best at his position. I think the strongest argument in my mind for, for this is that if all goes well, the Niners are not going to pick this high again. And so you, you get the ability to pick you know, the best player in a draft at a position of value. You, know, you can yeah. argue, I think, that one way or the other. But overall... And then you get some capital back when trade when you trade away Trent Brown. Definitely. And this is something that we know is important to Kyle Shanahan in his offense. And if there's one thing that we've maybe learned uh, during our, what, season and a half now um, with this new regime, it's that if Kyle Shanahan really wants something, he's going to get it. And uh, And I think you look at the history of teams that he's been a part of taking tackles early, taking tackles that are these big, athletic, kind of really prototypical tackle-type prospects um, early in the draft. I mean, from that point, uh, or from that perspective, it makes, again, a lot of sense. Yeah, so overall, while, yes, it, it is it does it is unfortunate that we didn't get like the guy that we wanted, I don't think this is in any way, shape, or form a bad pick. I think it's understandable. I think it makes a ton of sense for how the team is, how Kyle Shanahan and John Lynch want to construct the team. And I think McGlinchey is going to be a great, a great player for the 49ers. I mean, he's wearing number 69, so I already love him. <laughs> and and the dude looks like, you know, he worked in a car, like on a car line 
in in Indiana somewhere in 1957, and he's 37 years old. I was going to say, I love one of my favorite like running jokes right now on the PFF podcast and PFF like YouTube videos and stuff like that, that, that Steve and Sam are putting out now is how old Mike McGlinchey looks. And, yeah. and, and basically like, yeah, Joe Staley, man, he's going to be able to learn a lot from a veteran presence like Mike McGlinchey. <laughs> my, my favorite my favorite rendition of the joke was when he was like, yeah, I, I, Joe Staley is going to feel really good having a right tackle that's the same age as him. <laughs> it's good it's good it's great it's i like fun. it uh, so overall i think the mcglinchy pick while not what we initially had our hopes on it's a pick that makes a ton of sense and especially after getting some value back from trading trent brown trent brown is is one where it's like hey man on board let's do it it's great uh especially because it's a position of value so let's get to the round two pick and that's dante pettis round two pick number 44 let's start with it with his athleticism Another guy who didn't test due to due to an ankle injury that he suffered late in the season, but on tape he definitely looks to be a good athlete. He doesn't have that special athleticism or that special speed that you might see on tape. That admittedly you're like, oh wow, like that's amazing. I think someone like DJ Moore that we broke down in the preview podcast right. is probably an overall better athlete than Dante Pettis. But definitely. Dante Pettis is not lacking in athleticism. And especially when you put him on a straight line, I mean, he's got plays where he beats a defender just and blows right by them. Yeah. Uh, he's also got plays where he's able to use his change of direction skills and his balance in order to get a couple of extra yards after the catch. So overall, I don't think that Dante Pettis is someone who is lacking in athleticism. And from a production standpoint, I mean, largely looks really good. I mean, he did take, uh, you know, kind of a slight step back in 2017, but over his four-year career, really solid grading on in all those seasons. Uh, each of the last two seasons had overall grades above 80.0. Um, peak season did come in, again, in 2016, where he had an 85.1, which ranked 31st among receivers uh, that season. He has maybe some of the best hands of, of anybody in this wide receiver class. Had very few drops, only seven on 169 catchable targets uh, over his college career. This was something that uh, I believe Kyle Shanahan specifically pointed out when talking about Pettis after the draft was how much uh, he liked his hands. And then, of course, we, this is something, you know, Pettis was a guy that we talked about in the pre-draft process a bit, and he's got that big-time production as a punt returner. Um, was the highest-graded punt returner for PFF in the nation uh, last year, was top five in 2016. Of course, he's got the NCAA record for punt return touchdowns uh, over his career with nine of them there. So really add some immediate value uh, in the maybe one return position that still actually has some value in the game right now. You know, I, I think that when I when I think about the types of wide receivers that Kyle Shanahan likes, th- this is one of the areas where I think that his preferences are most clearly expressed. I think for for me as an outsider looking in, I think I know the most about what Kyle Shanahan wants in a wide receiver. And I know what he wants in an offensive lineman. And those two positions for me are, and, and maybe to a certain degree running back. Yeah, but skill positions, I think he has some yeah. very clear. He, yeah, he loves he loves wide receivers with hands. You think of Pierre Garçon, you think of Trent Taylor, you think of now Dante Pettis. The players that he's acquiring have really good hands, and if they don't have great hands, they better have something else that makes up for it. And that was Marquise Goodwin. Yeah. Marquise Goodwin didn't have the greatest of hands. He had you know some dropsies, but the dude was super quick, and that made up for the hands. And then he has, you know, a great year and he, you know, has now a quarterback that can get him catchable passes and now his drop rate, you know, goes down. So overall, I think that there's a clear profile for for what Shanahan wants. And we've talked about how, you know, you've got the Garcon, you've got the Taylor, you've got the Goodwin, and that's the complimentary set. Pettis is one of those players that, you know, kind of does a little bit of everything. Yeah, I mean, when you think about it, that profile is uh, is kind of very basic. He likes two things really above all else. 
you need to get open and you need to catch the ball when it's thrown to you, right? Which seems like very elementary when it comes to to looking at receivers, but uh, yeah, that's the 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 type of guys that you know he doesn't like. Everybody thinks that they need a contested catch guy, and they really haven't gone that Des direction. Bryant. Um, and, and so, yeah, I think when you start to look at where Pettis wins, uh, it really is, I think in the intermediate area is, is kind of his best spot. Uh, I think he's a good route runner. Um, you know, he just has a good feel for how to get open, how to set up defenders. Um, you know, I think with routes, you know, when he's facing man coverage, uh, especially like routes with hard breaks in them, you know, that's your, your kind of your comebacks, your deep curl routes, you know, stuff moving back to the ball where you really have to, to change direction, direction, uh, very quickly and, and sharply. Um, those are, are plays that he that did really well on, was able to get open consistently. Yeah, he destroyed um, this poor cornerback, uh, a, a Utah cornerback <laughs> over and over and over again on that post corner route because yeah. post corner route basically is, is a route that does exactly what it's basically Pettis's wheelhouse where he's able to get through the stem and then he's got to make two hard cuts, one of the yep. posts and then back out to the sideline. And he completely puts two different Utah defenders in the spin cycle multiple times. And it's wide open for catches along the sideline because those are the types of breaks that he is, that he excels at. And, and he is able to generate separation on those routes to a degree where we're both watching film. And there are a couple of plays where we both went like, Ooh, like, <laughs> Ooh. yeah. I mean, there, there's some, uh, some where, where he just is able to really destroy those defenders with his route running ability. And, and I think you move to zone coverage too. Right. And I think he's got a really good feel for finding open space in zones. I mean, beating zone coverage is really about being where defenders aren't you know you know that defenders are going to drop to these certain areas and they have uh certain keys that they're going to be looking for and and if you can get to the areas of the field that they can't be in or they're not intending to be in like that's really what what ends up mattering and i think that shows up too in, in one of the other areas that we really noticed was uh his ability in the scramble drill which you don't really think about a ton i don't think is really one of the top things that you would point out with receivers in most cases but consistently whenever his quarterback would start to scramble he was uh able to find open space and make himself available and give his quarterback a target uh to find you know in kind of this stressful situation russell wilson would enjoy dante pettis and i'm yeah. glad that he is oh, not yeah. i'm glad that he is not yeah there were a yeah, couple kind times. of very doug baldwin-esque in yes. that in that regard that's exactly right where he's always making himself available to the quarterback always breaking back towards the ball and this is where his his ability to come back to the football and attack the football also shines because he's working back towards the quarterback and the quarterback just throws it towards the sideline. He's not going to give the defender an opportunity to make a play on that ball because he's moving back towards it. So one of the other areas I think with Dante Pettis that was really impressive was his release, especially on the end zone fade. This was another area where it was over and over and over again. He's got to move. And that move in the red zone is he lines up in, in kind of a not, a, not necessarily a short set, but a shorter set. And he takes an inside jab step and then goes straight to the outside. He scored at least two touchdowns that I remember off of this. I think he one was broken up. But it was over and over and over again. Similar inside jab step and move to the outside. And the defender just has no chance. No chance whatsoever. And it, it's a great release. And it's a release that's in his skill set. And when we talk about the, the red zone as an area where the Niners need to improve, I think Dante Pettis can help them there immediately. Absolutely. I mean, it's that it's that same kind of element of what made him so successful on like the double moves, right? In, in that post corner route that you mentioned where it's it's the ability to really sell that you're going to do something else, right? And, and at the red zone, when you're an outside wide receiver, the DB's thinking two things, and he's kind of got to play one or the other in most cases. You got to play the slant. Or Inside play or the outside. Fade, right? <laughs> uh, that's really what it comes down to. Those are the two most common routes that you're going to see. 
And so what he does so well is sell that slant, right? Make the corner think you're running the slant and then get out to the fade and, and give your quarterback a lot of space to be able to throw to. Um, it's not always, you know, necessarily about winning jump ball situations. You know, it's, it's that ability to create space there that I think he does well. And that's something that shows up in other areas of his route running too. Yeah. And on that post corner route, one of the, one of the little things that he did that I thought was interesting that we saw was when he moves to the post, he looks back towards the quarterback. And as soon as a DB sees that head turn and he sees the receiver look back towards the quarterback, I got to look too. I got to look too. And I begin to break because that's a tell. So he begins to break, and that's when Pettis cuts it back to the corner, and at that point, the DB is toast. So little, little things like that that you'll see him do that really sell the different fakes that he uses that I think make him an effective route runner. And, and really the final thing that I think sticks out with him, and, and this is something that Shanahan mentioned, I feel like this is going to be kind of a big theme of, of the entire draft class, which is uh, versatility. You know, I, I think you look at his game, He's not really bad in any one area. You know, there's not something you point to like, ah, you probably don't want to do that with him. Um, he's also like not great in any one area. He just kind of does everything pretty well, right? You saw him get behind players or behind defenses on some big routes, on post routes, and be able to stretch the field uh, deep. You know, you saw him be utilized underneath on shorter routes. I mean, they used him a lot on screens and trying to get him in space, probably trying to take advantage again of that, that punt return ability, um, you know, thinking that they can get him the ball and in some room to work that he's going to be good. Um, and I just think that, yeah, he, he kind of does a little bit of everything. Well, he can play outside, can play inside. I think you look at those three roles, you know, going into the draft, it was okay. You have Garcon, Goodwin and Trent Taylor that are your three clear top guys and each kind of has a, a different area of the field that they really work within and, and do well. You could see him, I think, line up in any one of those spots and and do well. So I think that versatility is is definitely something um, that they were attracted to and, and is a reason they traded up and, and wanted to get him. And then, of course, you have, again, the immediate value as a punt returner and av- adding the ability to, to play an extra down and, and provide value when he's not on offense. So what are his limitations? Well, the, the top limitation, and this might be weird given his success as a punt returner, but it's it's run after the catch. You don't see him with kind of exhibit the same sort of open field ability as a receiver that you see when he's on punt returns. He doesn't usually make the first guy miss. And this may be just because of the types of the routes that he ran in college. He's moving. This is one of the things that we noted that was he was really good at. Right, He's moving back towards the line of scrimmage. He's attacking the ball. Well, at that point, you're not really you don't you can't see the field. You have to basically turn one way or the other. And and sometimes you just turn the wrong way. You guess wrong. And all of a sudden it's, you get it's tackled. It's not a route that's set up that's, yeah. that's going to consistently generate a lot of yards after the catch. Yeah, it's right? not a drag route. It's yeah. not a slant route. It's not, you know, a kind of a post where you're hitting stride. Yeah. Um, you're working towards the sideline or you're coming back towards the ball. And those are more difficult to get yards after the catch opportunities. But even on screens, because we did see a fair amount of right. screens go Definitely. his way. That's where you really didn't see the run after the catch ability where you would expect to see it because you, they did create a tunnel for him or, or he does have a bubble screen and he's able to make a guy miss here and there. But it's not that consistent run after the catch ability that you have with someone like a DJ Moore. And yeah. not, not that I'm, you know, I mean, I'm consistently comparing them just because he's someone that I know we spent a lot of time watching. Sure. And he's someone who exhibited really, really good run after the catch ability and great athleticism. And so I think there's a reason why DJ Moore was one of the first wide receivers taken off the board in the first round and, and Pettis was a second rounder. Doesn't mean that he's going to be, you know, 
oh my god, he's going to be so much worse. It's just these are the things that you notice in you know different talent levels and 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 it, overall, I think it creates a profile for the type of player that he is. Yeah, and and it's not that he's bad. I think it's it's mostly uh, I think an expectation thing, right? You it's see surprising. how good he is, uh, you know, making guys miss and and taking advantage of that space in the open field as a punt returner. And then you don't see that same sort of thing translate when he's got the ball in his hands on offense. It's just a little strange. So I think you expect a little bit more out of him in that area. Um, but I, again, as we covered in, in where he wins, like there are plenty of good traits that, that set him up to have some value offensively and be, you know, a good part of this offense. So let's get to where he fits. Ultimately, this is the player that offers depth at every wide receiver role in the offense. We mentioned it in the offseason, but I don't think that the wide receiver cupboard is nearly as bare as a lot of people thought it was. Yeah. And, and I think that the three starters are at this point locked down, and you really need someone who can grow, it, it provide immediate backup, and then grow maybe into something in a couple of years. And I think that's exactly what Pettis offers. And I think long-term, he's someone who could be the Garcon replacement. He has those types of skills. He has those hands. And he has the ability to to be the same to fit that role of the three that Shanahan prefers. Yeah, and I think he's going to, you know, he's going to get on the field. I I, I don't think it would be, uh, I think Shanahan like kind of prefers a little bit of a rotation at wide receiver and is not necessarily set on needing to have the same three guys out there every snap, right? I think you'll see. Well, you've got certain, I think what he, what he likes to do, and I think this makes a ton of sense, is you try to maximize the wide receiver skills with the types of routes that you have yeah. him call. Now, a friend of the pod, George, from the PFF forecast, he he called Pettis Shanahan's Taylor Gabriel. Yeah. Would you agree that that's how Shanahan is going to employ a wide receiver like Taylor Gabriel? Yeah, I think from a usage standpoint, it makes a lot of sense, especially early on, you know. And, and again, right now, I think it's about getting him on the field and getting him some snaps. He's not going to. I think the key thing right away and why we mentioned like, right now he's depth at all of those positions is because to me it would be pretty surprising if he comes in and he's like the first or second receiver on the team in terms of snap count this year right like I still kind of fully expect him to be uh around the same number as Trent Taylor probably a little bit less maybe even depending on how they decide to go with things I think maybe you can use Pettis a little bit more in some of the like two receiver sets and and some of that type of stuff so I think in that same sort of ballpark uh, as far as overall snap count goes, but he's going to find a way to get on the field. And, and yeah, I think he's going to be able to use him inside, outside and, and do some different things with them. So let's move to the third round pick. And that's one Mr. Fred Warner from BYU third round 70th overall pick. When you look at his athleticism, he is, he is someone who did test and he was a plus athlete. His 80th percentile spark score was 10th among linebackers in this class. So we know that he is a great athlete, especially at his size. Dude's tall. He's 6'3", which is, I mean, even for a linebacker, that's tall. And when you think of... You see linebackers now. I mean, we talked about this with the Rokon Smith stuff and people thinking he's undersized. And it's really not. I mean, most of your linebackers are kind of in that... Six foot, six one, you know, maybe they get to six two or something like that, and they're around two thirty, and and that's kind of where today's linebacker is. Yeah, and, and that's exactly where Fred Warner is, and he's able to move that weight around very, very well. So, what about his production? I mean, his, he's the third round pick out of BYU. Uh, is his production something that matches up with his athleticism? I think it is. Yeah, I, I think this is actually a, a player that's pretty exciting in both those regards. So yeah, has the plus, ath- plus athleticism and then graded well. Plus athleticism. Plus, plus athleticism. <laughs> uh, 
he graded well in, in all three seasons as a starter at BYU. So he's got a kind of extensive playing time. He's not a guy that just had one big year. Um, was excellent against the run during those final two seasons. Uh, had a run defense grade over 88 in both seasons. And then the thing that you really get with him is he has a lot more coverage experience than I think your typical linebacker does because of the type of role that he played at BYU. So you see good coverage grades from him uh, across his entire career, 76 or higher in all four seasons. Um, And it was because he was able to play uh, kind of this hybrid outside linebacker slot cornerback type role that, that really only exists in college football. Um, but the, the amount of time that he had to spend in coverage as a college player really, I think, bodes well for his transition to the NFL. So I think that's, that's one thing to note specifically about Fred Warner is this the, the notion that he played the overhang defender in college. This wasn't a term that even I was familiar, familiar with before, I think, last season. But the overhang defender is a product of college football because of where the hash marks are. Because the hash marks are a little tighter in than they are with the NFL field, you end up getting a, a really, really wide side of the field. And when you have that wide side of the field, it invites college offensive coordinators and college head coaches that are designing plays to maximize that space. So you'll oftentimes see a slot defender or three wide side and, and a linebacker, which in, in an NFL field might not have to cover as much ground, all of a sudden ends up being in a quite a bit more space just because of the way the field is laid out and because of where the coach puts those wide receivers. And so this kind of hybrid defender in college is developed called the overhang defender, where it's a linebacker, sometimes a safety, that will play kind of overhanging that area. And I mean, it's a really tough spot to play. I think that a good way to look at it is you really have a player that has the pass coverage responsibilities of either like a safety or a slot corner, right? Um, doing similar things there but has the run responsibilities of a linebacker. A lot of times you see these guys that are removed from the box, right? So uh, again, a lot of times if you're, uh, if they've got trips, they may be like between the number two and number three receivers, which is uh, if you count outside in, right? So the furthest guy to the outside is number one, and then you work your way inside. So kind of splitting two and three there, or sometimes it'll be, if they just have one slot guy, it'll be splitting uh, what's usually called like the apex position, which is between the last man on the line of scrimmage, either that tight end or tackle, and then the slot receiver. And in those positions, you still he still has to be able a lot of times to kind of like fold into the run fit and be able to play the B gap, like if he was a linebacker that was just aligned over the guard, right? So it, it's kind of this tough position to play um, that that really benefit like college defenses really benefit from having a great athlete that can cover a lot of ground there. And so the fact that he played that type of role again in college, I think really bodes well for him transitioning to the NFL. And this is, I think what excites me the most about where he wins because he has, he, we talked about Roquan Smith in one of the pre-draft podcasts and we talked about how he was the modern NFL linebacker because of what he was able to do in the passing game. And that's one of the only reasons that I was comfortable with taking someone like Roquan at nine because of his effect in the passing game. Well, you could argue that we got Roquan Light in Fred Warner just in the third round based on what he was able to do in the passing game. So let's talk about first how he was as a run defender because he's a linebacker after all. And this is where his athleticism really shows. So he's able to track down ball carriers near the line of scrimmage, especially on the backside of plays. There are times where he's crashing down. There was one snap specifically where he's on the backside and he crashes down the line and it's almost like he slaps the tackle's butt <laughs> as he goes around because he's hugging that tight to the line yeah. and crashes right down and just 
tackles the, the running back on, on a zone play to the other side. And, and that's what you want from someone who's going to play more than likely weak side linebacker in this scheme. They've got to be able to crash that backside and they've got to be able to provide run support on the weak side. And he showed that he was able to do that exceptionally well. Definitely. You don't see a ton of defenders that can really make those plays and track down plays going wide to the opposite side of the field, you know, or hitting off tackle the opposite side of the field, being able to make those plays off the backside. Um, even when you're unblocked is, is, you know, there's a reason that you're unblocked as yeah. the backside because they're not really expecting that guy to have an opportunity to make a play. And so, um, you know, I think that really speaks to the athleticism that he brings. And then you again, see that show up in coverage. So as an underneath coverage defender, and this is very true for what the 49ers do on, on defense, a lot of it comes down to closing very quickly on those underneath routes, right? So you're trying to to sink and get depth and make sure that you can bother kind of the passing lanes in the intermediate area. But when that pass is thrown in front of you, you need, need to be able to close quickly and make the tackle and really limit yards after the catch here, right? You're not going to make a ton of plays on the ball, um, you know, on routes that are thrown five yards from the line of scrimmage. It just doesn't happen very often. Maybe every once in a while when you're in like in a man covered situation, but that's not really what the expected result is, right? When you're you're looking at coverage in that regard. So looking at him consistently do that, you know, playing kind of that curl flat zone or playing hook zones that you're going to have in the 49ers defense and being able to come up and close and, and meet running backs and tight ends and receivers in that short area and make tackles, I think was something that really stuck out with him. We've talked about the so far in the pre-draft kind of coverage about how you have edge, def- edge pass defenders and middle of the field pass defenders. And and Fred Warner, I think, has uh, the potential to be a really versatile coverage defender in the middle of the field. You didn't get to see a matchup with receivers and man coverage a ton, but he showed some ability when he did. And he has the length and athleticism to be really valuable here. So overall, when we talk about his effect of the passing game, he is a coverage linebacker and he's shown skills to be able to do that very, very well. George, friend of the pod, we should uh, we should just have like a cardboard cutout of him at this point, uh, who's here as the the unofficial third member of the Better Rivals podcast. But uh, he had a really good note about uh, Warner in his draft recap, and so he talked. He compared Roquan and Warner a little bit, and he said that Warner allowed a passer rating of sixty two point nine, a completion rate of sixty eight point eight percent, and graded positively on thirty one point three percent of his targets, covering running backs and tight ends during his career. Roquan Smith, by comparison, allowed a passer rating of 88.9, a completion rate of 80%, and graded positively on 47.5% of targets against backs and tight ends. So this is a player who I think that we're going to get to his areas to improve here. So we know that he's not going to be quite at the same level of Roquan because sure. he's, he's not that There's good. a reason he wasn't like considered a top 10 pick. That's right? exactly right. But when you're thinking about a third-round player that you know kind of the difference in what you paid for them but maybe the difference in what you get that there's real real value here in this pick absolutely again i think linebacker today is all about being able to to be able to cover you if you can't cover you just don't have a lot of value in today's league and and so the fact that he was so good and has a lot of experience too again it, it was experience playing out in the slot covering receivers here and there you know spending a lot of time covering tight ends of course um so it's just like the repetitions that he has playing the type of role that he played in college is really going to benefit him. When you get to the areas to improve, I mean, there, there are definitely some things that he needs to clean up. I think um, one of the first things that stuck out there was his kind of eye discipline and coverage, right? Getting 
eyes kind of lost in the backfield a little bit and then losing track of where those receivers are behind him. So really when you're, when you're talking about zone defense where you need to drop to a spot, which is something that the 49ers do with their interior guys quite a bit. I mean, you need to kind of know where route concepts are going. Like, yeah, you want to keep your eyes on the quarterback and have an idea where he's looking and kind of let that guide you to a degree. But you also need to know where the receivers are at and know where you need to be to get in throwing lanes and be able to affect those passes. And there are just some snaps, like some of his bad snaps or plays where he just gets Gets kind lost. of distracted, yeah, lost. lost, staring down at the quarterback and then loses receivers behind him and, and kind of gives up some bigger plays as a result. So I think that's the, the big area coverage-wise that he needs to improve. Yeah, and the other thing is, well, his tackling. He missed 30 tackles over the last 30 seasons. That's not It's not terrible. It's not the worst that we've ever seen, but it's not great. 10 a season isn't great. Yeah, yeah I mean, that's a little great. bit more. Even somebody that has a, a solid, you know, safeties, linebackers get a solid number of, of tackle attempts there, but that's... That's still not what yeah, you want to see. It's not good. And and a lot of it was him kind of overreaching and getting a little out of position. But it's just it's one of those things where hopefully you can see those get cleaned up. Those two things though don't worry me as much as as his the kind of the, the consistent force defense issues that we saw though. And and I think his, I think his tackling technique is gonna get corrected at the NFL level. I think eye discipline, you know, that's probably the number two thing, but it's like like over and over and over again, whenever he had to be the force player in space, he often just didn't go to the right spot and he forced the defender to the wrong area. Only thing that kind of buoys me is that he's not going to have to play in that much space in the NFL. Yeah, thankfully, you know, especially if he moves more inside, right? I think there could be some snaps. We'll get to that uh, in, in where he fits, but I think largely he's going to be playing an off ball spot, you know, for the 49ers and like maybe they move him around a little bit and let him match up with some some players is a specific game plan type of thing. But that's largely, I think, where most of his snaps are coming from. And so hopefully that will mass. Yeah, this thing, I think the, the majority of his bad snaps came in force defense. And, and you think, OK, what is force defense? It, you was, need yeah, to explain force defense real quick. <laughs> it, it's basically there. There are players when you look at how the defense fits against the run, right? Everybody's got their responsibility. Some players on the inside, you know, if you're down in the front, you're going to have gaps that you need to control and, and you have certain responsibilities there. There's uh, always going to be somebody that's responsible for typically forcing the play back inside, right? That's going to be like in the 49ers scheme, for instance, a lot of times that ends up being the strong safety um, or it can be like your uh, Sam linebacker, for instance, like depending on how the th- things are aligned. Like it's the guy that needs to come off the edge, play in that alley space between the end of the offensive line and where the receivers are at and really be able to force things back inside. Yeah, that's uh, that's what always helps me figure out where where the force generally is, is that alley between the end of the uh, between the end of the line and and not yet out to the defensive back. That alley that's created right there. That's usually where the force player lives, and they usually want to be on the outside of the offensive, whatever offensive player is threatening that alley. You want to be on the outside shoulder of that offensive player to push them back into your help. You want to force them back inside, hence the name, force player. And and so with him, it, it was a situation where a lot of times you see him trying to just go through the blocker and, and really overextend to try to make the play. And then he ends up losing that outside leverage and allowing the ball carrier to kind of bounce outside and pick up a lot more yardage than he would have. If it's kind of this, uh, this uh, feeling that he wants to make the play himself rather than really trusting in the defense, right? Uh, the, the defense is very much a, a team thing and you need to be able to trust that your teammates are going to be there 
Uh, it's why you can't like leave your gap assignment right to go head off toward the ball carrier and leave a massive space in the defense because good offenses, good ball carriers are going to find that, right? And they're going to exploit that. And I think it's a similar thing here where he really wants to make the play. And and I think that kind of costs him sometimes. And he gives yeah. up some bigger plays as a result. I mean, it may be a product of, uh, you know, we were looking at kind of like, all right, I was BYU's familiar de- with BYU's, de- BYU's yeah. defense. Yeah. How are good they are terrible? They? Um, and, and so maybe it was a product of like, okay, he thinks he's, you know, I'm clearly the best player on this defense. And, and it's a case where if I don't make this play, maybe nobody will type of thing. Um, I mean, I don't think that they were necessarily that bad to warrant it, but no. I think, yeah, that's something that was concerning. It showed up, you know, and on screen plays runs to the outside, stuff like that, where really needed him to kind of maintain that outside leverage. He goes inside after the ball carrier, and it, and it kind of costs the defense as a result. Yeah, I, I think where he fits overall, he because he played largely as an overhang defender in college, the, the Niners would be best kind of suited to put him at will, I would wish. Although it sounds like the Niners are going to start him at Mike with Foster away from the team. And and that's the, eventually where he will, you know, kind of where he will be able to play interchangeably between Mike and Will. Yeah. And those positions like there's very little difference in, in practically in, in what they're asked to do in, in this defense, especially like they're the off ball positions um, and you're not going to see them, you know, line up on the line of scrimmage very often or anything like that. Um, but especially once you get into sub package territory where you're at the majority of the time, like. It doesn't really matter. Which yeah, in, in sub packages, he's basically going to be matched up against, you know, kind of wherever we, we need him to go, whether that's going to be against the tight end or against the back. That's going to be where he shines. Yeah. I keep thinking of the plays where he was in space and the quarterback tried to put the ball over the linebacker and kind of into that area between the safety and linebacker. And he's just so damn tall that he was yeah, able to jump up and knock the ball away. And and it was it was just that extra inch or two of height and wingspan that gave him that that PBU or pass breakup where another linebacker wouldn't have that. I think two things that can really make, you know, there are some problems about playing, you know, this relatively kind of vanilla cover three type of thing if you don't have the right personnel there. And, And I think the two things that really help you in those underneath coverage defenders are speed and length, right? Like the length and, and the size to be able to to get hands in, in passing lanes and be able to affect throws that way. And then that speed to be able, be able to really close on those uh, catches that are made in front of you to limit yards after the catch. If you can do those things consistently, that's really going to help you out. That's what Seattle's done consistently, you know, when, when they've been really good defensively. So I think that's uh, uh, definitely something that he adds. I actually wouldn't be terribly surprised if he played some Sam and base situations. Uh, especially if Foster's on the field, right? If Foster's not, then you probably can toss that out the window. Um, but if they do have Foster there, he played so like when he didn't have receivers necessarily to his side of the field, he becomes effectively an outside linebacker that's kind of like up on the line of scrimmage a little bit more as as a type of edge guy. And so he's got a lot of experience, you know, playing there uh, right on the edge over tight ends, over tackles and, and being in the run game in those situations. And so if it's a case where Foster's still there, and you've got him, uh, and you decide that, like, okay, maybe we don't want a ton of Eli Harold out on the field, and we want to, you know, see if he can come in there and, and give us some snaps. This is another way to get him on the field. Um, that wouldn't be terribly surprising to me if they used him that way. Yeah, and while I think that overall he can play Mike, and, and those positions are largely the same, I do think he's probably a better fit at will. Um, just because of of w- when you think of someone who's a Mike, generally they're going to be on the strong side. So generally they're going to be seeing a bit more head on blocks than than you will at the will position. 
and and he is he's good in space. And and I mean, so is I mean, hell, so is Ruben Foster, right? But sure. but I think that he's he's probably gonna be better for that area, and I think he's gonna compete with uh, in an ideal situation. He competes with Malcolm Smith for the job, and he either ends up winning it and gets Malcolm Smith the old veteran trade that the Niners are apparently getting really good at, <laughs> giving a lot of money to a player and then trading him away. I <laughs> uh, wouldn't even be mad. Yeah. yeah, wouldn't be mad at that. But but yeah, I think uh, th- this is a pick that I'm uh, that overall excites me just because of what it shows about how the team thinks about pass coverage. Yeah. What it shows that they think about the linebacker position and and the value that they obtained, I think, in the third round. This is one of my favorite picks of the draft, to be honest with you. Yeah, I completely agree for, for all those reasons. Yeah. So let's get to uh, defensive back Tarvarius Moore, uh, a name that we're going to mess up often because we have a Tarvarius. Don't we have like a... Uh, we have a... There's Tar- an, I think there's just a Tarvarius. There's a Tarvarius. Uh, McFadden, there's a Tarvarius. which was the corner right, is, Correct. is the t- kind of top undrafted guy that they got. But. Good loud. Uh, but this is a Tarvarius Moore from Southern Miss, third round, 95th pick overall. And when we talk about his athleticism, this is, again, there's a theme developing here. He is the, he was in the 95th percentile in spark score. Yeah, fourth, buddy. Fourth among safeties and still compares very, very favorably to cornerbacks. The dude's a monster athlete, a ridiculous athlete. He's incredibly explosive. He tested incredibly well in both the 40 and in the broad jump and the vertical jump. Basically, he's a explosion speed guy and he's doing it at like what, 6'2? Uh, yeah, he's like I think he's like six one and a, measure the uh, it is pro day I six, believe one like, like six one and a half two hundred pounds basically yeah. like yeah he's uh, you know pretty good size there especially when you talk about maybe moving him to corner like and he just and he's blazing fast flies around yeah and, I mean, and it shows up on tape dude he's very very good feet fluid hips and and it's he doesn't look very he doesn't look stiff he looks like he is the kind of athlete that he tested at which is always good to see on tape definitely and, and from a production standpoint so with him uh he was a community college transfer so only really one season of significant playing time when he was at southern miss which was this past season uh in 2017 but he really made the most of it i mean had a had a great grade 87.2 overall which was sixth among among safeties he was there with derwin james as pffs First team All American safety um, was that good during the season. Um, was the third safety on on the board for PFF uh, entering the draft. Um, so really was able to kind of maximize that one season that he had playing. You know FBS football made a lot of plays on the ball as well. So fourteen plays on the ball on just fifty one targets. Uh, that's five interceptions, nine passes defensed. So w- was consistently again not a ton of targets uh, during that time, but was able to make the most of it uh, when, when he did see the ball thrown his way. So overall, where does Tarverius Moore win? Well, he wins when he makes plays on the ball. He uses his length to his advantage, and he's able to get his hands on passes and underneath coverage because he shrinks passing windows because the dude's basically a spider. It's that thing we just, I mean, the thing we just talked about with Warner, it's the same thing here. I mean, there were so many plays with Moore where you see him well underneath the receiver, like yeah. the guy kind of running, whether it's like a dig route or some sort of skinny post right behind him. And he may be seven yards in front of it, but if you don't get enough air on that throw, like he's getting up there, he's, and he's getting, getting, getting his there. hands on it. Yeah. And, and so there were a number of plays that he made like that. And athleticism is a big part of his game. He flies around and closes space in a hurry. He he did have a couple of snaps where he carried the wide receiver vertically. He didn't do it often because he basically played cover four safety. And and he did that a lot at, at Southern Miss. But yeah. there were a couple of snaps where we were able to see him carry a wide receiver. So I can totally see where the 49ers want to try him out at corner because 
especially given the current Niners roster construction, corners a position of value. And why not try the guy out at a position of value first? And if he doesn't make it there, you know you still have a capable safety because I do think that he could be a very, very capable safety if you never change his position. But why not try him at a position of value? It's the same argument we had for someone like Quentin Nelson, right? It's like, well, he could play tackle. Tackle's more valuable than guard. Try him out at tackle. Why the hell not? He's either going to be great or his fallback plan is to be a very good guard. And I think that Tarverius Moore, to a lesser degree, not at the top of the draft, but sure. you know, in, in the third round, fits that similar profile. It's like, why not play him at a position of value? And if he doesn't make it, then okay, then we know we have probably a pretty good safety either way. Um, yeah. Because that's the, kind of, that's the kind of player that he was on tape. And because of the players that they've added you know, in the draft here, and, and you look at guys, they're, they're in kind of this weird spot for... 2018, they have now kind of a lot of guys competing for playing time in those interior coverage spots, right? You think about Jimmy Ward, who, yes, they're trying it outside corner, but I still feel like he's going to land back on the inside, which is really where he's best. You look at Quan Williams, who was a slot corner last year. You have Jaquaski Tart that's in there that's going to be the starting safety, but we know that he's capable of matching up with tight ends and doing some things there as well. You have Fred Warner that you just added uh, that can be versatile in that area, and now you have Tavares Moore. And you've got Ruben Foster, too, who we know can play yeah. who, who can play on the inside well. And so you have a lot of players there that can kind of compete for snaps doing similar things in the middle of the field, but that might not, not always be the case, right? You know, they did give Tart an extension, but we've talked about Jimmy Ward entering the final year of his deal, whether he's going to be there. I think Quan Williams is a guy who was is kind of... He's been good in stretches, but I don't think he's been so good that you're sold... That Dude, he's absolutely the follow, best option there, right? Follow the money, man. They, they they re-signed him to a contract extension, but it's not like it's a huge contract extension. Right. Like, the, the, nothing about his deal tells me we're committed to him long-term. Like, his deal is we're committed to him right now. And Yeah, because that's what we've got. Exactly. And if right. something better comes along, he might be a New England Patriot in, like, four months. <laughs> and so because of that, you look at, uh, you know, having more, and we know that eventually somebody, you know, even if Sherman's great this season, he bounces back from the injury and, and all that's fine. Like, you need to be thinking about who's going to step into that role. I think that's why they add McFadden as an undrafted guy as well. But you have a player who kind of fits the profile of what they like at corner, that tall uh, they're athletic, they can run well, um, and that's kind of what they like. And so, yeah, give him an opportunity, even though that's not necessarily what he did in college. Overall, he performed very well in college when against wide receivers when given the chance. He allowed a completion rate of 51.5%. Uh, he allowed only 5.8 yards per attempt and a passer rating of 66.6 when in primary coverage against a wide receiver over his career. So overall, plus athlete, incredibly strong athlete, athleticism shows up on tape and while he played primarily safety he did exhibit the skills at times to cover wide receivers in more of a cornerback capacity but where does he need to improve i think with him it's a similar thing to warner it's uh, tackling right is is kind of one of the first thing that jumps out and it's because he's flying around so much that i think you just see some snaps where he's not really in control enough by the time that he reaches the ball carrier and that allows him or that causes him to kind of like over pursue at times but missed 13 tackles on 116 attempts uh, while he was at Southern Miss, which is about 11% of his tackle attempts, which is is too high. You don't want to be in, in double digits. That's not great. But I think the reason why he's missing those tackles largely, it's not because he's a poor tackler, right? It, it's largely for good things. It's kind of like why Richard Sherman's getting penalties as a, as a cornerback, right? 
it's largely because he's doing good things on most downs and there. He kind of flirts with that line. Right. And I think that's kind of what you see with more in the tackling. Yeah. So where does he fit? Well, the team wants to try him out at cornerback and it's, it's tough to make a true projection there just because we didn't see him do a ton of that in college. It seems like the team is saying, Hey, height, weight, speed fits the mold and let's give it a whirl because it's a position of value. I don't think that's a bad shot to take. Yeah. And, and I think you try it, and then I think you move him back to safety if, if that doesn't work out. And, and I don't think that he that the team is in such a bind at corner that they need him to pan out at outside corner. But I, I think that they would love for that to happen. And then if it doesn't, they can always move him inside because, hey, no team goes throughout an entire season without injuries. Absolutely. Um, depth is, is going to be so key. And the fact that we know that he can come in there. I mean, Tart hasn't been able to stay healthy yet, right? So even if he starts the season as your strong safety he gets injured like having versatile players who have experience at multiple spots and, and can potentially play there i think helps your defense out so part of what we were talking about in the pre-draft lead up was how you know sometimes especially in college you, you don't want to you don't want to be versatile at everything because it, that effectively means that you're good at nothing unless you're like so good at the whole wide world that you're like elite and that you're great but those are very very few players so given the kind of players that we've talked about and we've talked about their versatility and the desire for them to be versatile when it comes to more, when it comes even to, to Fred Warner a little bit, is is that versatility eventually in Achilles heel where you look at someone like, you know, our, our former starting safety, former starting outside corner, former starting slot corner, you know, that that has played so many different positions and has bounced around in Jimmy Ward that now he seems to be like a man without a country, right? A man without a position. And you don't know where he's going to play. And so maybe he just doesn't play for the Niners. Is the team maybe creating a situation where more could play corner, more could play safety, but he doesn't get enough reps at either one to be successful at either one? I think it's definitely a worry. Um, you know, we this was something that we kind of talked about earlier on as we we're watching film. And I've been thinking about it more and more even even since then. And it's... I think it really comes down to, I don't know that there's a, a clear right answer, right? I think you can I succeed either going either direction where you have players that are largely specialized, right? I have my guys, they're outside. That's what they do. And they can really only do that thing. And then I have my guy that's my slot corner, right? And everything's kind of specialized. They have the specific role that they can play and, and really can't do anything outside of that. If you have the right players in those spots, like you can definitely be successful there. I think the same goes for having a secondary full of kind of these versatile, uh, movable chess pieces right on defense. Essentially, um, if you have the, if you find the right guys, it can work. And I think that's ultimately what it's going to come down to with Ward. It's been tough because you're talking about multiple scheme and, and uh, coach changes and all of that stuff that I think complicates things. I think if you have some some. Uh, cohesiveness there from a scheme and coach standpoint and you have a clear plan with these players and and like this is what we're going to try to do these are the things we're going to ask them to do and we know that we can move them to x y and z right and feel comfortable with what they're going to do in those spots then i think it, it becomes a little bit easier again if you've got the right guys in those spots yeah i think ultimately you're right there's there's no certainly right or wrong answer i just i know that i'm, I'm looking at a world where you've got limited practice snaps and limited time to get these players reps sure. and so you have to maximize the reps that they have just because of the collective bargaining agreement and the whole nine i just i'm i'm slowly moving towards the the philosophy or, or the the idea where i think you don't 
want to the NFL teams I just don't think have the time to truly develop talent the way they used to previously. And and that doesn't mean that they can't or that it's impossible that they won't. Uh, I just think that when you're looking at a, a position switch or a player where you know they're going to have to get reps and snaps to really do something they never really were asked to do in college, I think that's that that becomes more and more difficult in today's NFL. Not yeah, impossible. Sure. It just becomes difficult. Uh, and, and so I think that you want to create an environment where that player is going to succeed. And that might be just leaving him at safety and letting him do that and and calling it a day because you know that's where he's going to be good. Definitely. And I, and I think there is, you know, uh, especially giving him the first opportunity there. The, the one thing that I will say with leaning, because the more I think about it, the more I think I lean going with more versatile defenders. And the reason is, is because like the one inevitability that we know every single season with the NFL teams you're going to have to deal with injury. You're, you're flat out going to have to deal with it. And if you get if you avoid it for a season, you're just incredibly lucky, right? There's no way you can plan for that. And so if you have a, a roster that's more full of specialized players and one of those specialized players gets hurt, then you're you're stuck because yeah. you have nothing that you can do to make up for that loss. Whereas if you have these guys that can play multiple positions and do different things well, and maybe they're not great at any one of those things but kind of together they all work together and can fill all those holes then if you have a guy go down you're in a much better situation yeah. as a defense it's like a secondary shoot that makes yeah. that makes sense and yep. and it makes sense because it basically the the argument boils down to uh, it's it's a roster size consideration versus a practice time consideration yep and and it's like well we know that we don't have the practice time to really to really develop these players in the way that we want to so let's just let them do the things they're good at or well, we really just don't have the space to carry like 12. This is in college, yeah. right? You can't carry 12 defenders. You have five or six past defenders that you can take, uh, that you can carry on your roster on any given day. Um, and that's how offensive lines basically make their money. That's why the, the swing tackle, right? You have one tackle backup <laughs> and one interior lineman backup. And they, they've got to be able to do multiple things just because of roster size. So, yeah, no, I, I think it makes a ton of sense. And, and I, I could see the argument for either one. I just ultimately want the players to succeed. And, and that means putting them in positions to succeed and Definitely. giving and giving them the time to learn. And I think it'll be like if we look back on this draft in a couple of years, because, I mean, there's another player, too, that we'll get to in DJ Reed, who is is somebody that played outside and they're probably going to ask him to do something other than play outside. And so you have three defenders, I think, uh, as coverage defenders who uh, produced really well in college, um, have good skills that you want to have on your roster but you are asking them to all do kind of different things than what they did in college. And I think if you look back in three years and none of those players pan out, like the strategy is going to be questioned. And I think fairly so, but I think, yeah, it really depends on like this, this type of path as a defense can work if you're successful at identifying the players. And that's really what it comes down to. Well, that's going to be it for this week's edition where we covered the first three rounds. We're going to get to uh, next week, starting round four, uh, and five and really uh, six and maybe even seven is what we're going to cover next week because that's how numbers work uh, and that's day how the draft worked three. out. We'll that's- boil that down to day three, get some uh, kind of final takeaways, again, recap some of the big picture stuff that we've touched on at points throughout some of these players but really kind of like boil down to what, what we took away from this draft. Yeah, so if you're looking for our merch, go to tpublic.com, T-E-E-public.com and Search for Better Rivals or 49ers, and you'll be able to find our stuff to go ahead and purchase. You can purchase that about to throw up onesie. You can, <laughs> actually, you're, you can also purchase coffee mugs. That's what I just got. I got a coffee mug and a travel mug. 
so that I can take one to work because I'm a caffeine addict. Um, yeah. And that's basically what it comes down to. But thanks again to Josie for all the great artwork that he did on the logo as well as all the stuff he did on the wallpapers. Make sure you can get those as well. Thanks again for tuning in. Next week we cover day three. And as always, go Niners. Hello, I'm Ashley Carmen. I'm Caitlin Tiffany. We're the hosts of Why'd You Push That Button, the Verge's show about all the choices technology forces us to make. We're back for season three, talking about questions like, why do you delete your tweets? And why do you type in lowercase letters that make you seem like a serial killer? And why are you on an exclusive dating app? You're not that special. We're releasing a new episode every Wednesday, and you can find us anywhere you typically find podcasts, which is Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts. So go ahead and subscribe and check us out.